We now continue with part two of the opinion of the court in District of Columbia v. Heller. Section D. We now address how the Second Amendment was interpreted from immediately after its ratification through the end of the 19th century. Before proceeding, however, we take issue with Justice Stevens' equating of these sources with post-enactment legislative history, a comparison that betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of a court's interpretive task. Legislative history, of course, refers to the pre-enactment statements of those who drafted or voted for a law. It is considered persuasive by some, not because they reflect the general understanding of the disputed terms, but because the legislators who heard or read those statements presumably voted with that understanding. Post-enactment legislative history, a deprecatory contradiction in terms, refers to statements of those who drafted or voted for the law that are made after its enactment and hence could have had no effect on the congressional vote. It most certainly does not refer to the examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of a legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification. That sort of inquiry is a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. As we will show, virtually all interpreters of the Second Amendment in the century after its enactment, interpreted the amendment as we do. 1. Post-Ratification Commentary Three important founding-era legal scholars interpreted the Second Amendment in published writings. All three understood it to protect an individual right unconnected with militia service. St. George Tucker's version of Blackstone's commentaries, as we explained above, conceived of the Blackstonian arms right as necessary for self-defense. He equated that right, absent the religious and class-based restrictions, with the Second Amendment. In Note D, entitled, View of the Constitution of the United States, Tucker elaborated on the Second Amendment, quote, This may be considered as the true palladium of liberty. The right to self-defense is the first law of nature. In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine the right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever standing armies are kept up, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is under any color or pretext whatsoever, prohibited. Liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. He believed that the English game laws had abridged the right by prohibiting keeping a gun or other engine for the destruction of game. He later grouped the right with some of the individual rights included in the First Amendment and said that if a law be passed by Congress prohibiting any of those rights, 
it would be the province of the judiciary to pronounce whether any such act were constitutional or not, and if not, to acquit the accused. It is unlikely that Tucker was referring to a person's being accused of violating a law making it a crime to bear arms in a state militia. In 1825, William Rawl, a prominent lawyer who had been a member of the Pennsylvania Assembly that ratified the Bill of Rights, published an influential treatise which analyzed the Second Amendment as follows. The first principle is a declaration that a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, a proposition from which few will dissent. The corollary from the first position is that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The prohibition is general. No clause in the Constitution could, by any rule of construction, be conceived to give Congress a power to disarm the people. Such a flagitious attempt could only be made under some general pretense by a state legislature. But if in any blind pursuit of inordinate power, either should attempt it, this amendment may be appealed as a restraint on both. Like Tucker, Rawl regarded the English game laws as violating the right codified in the Second Amendment. Rawl clearly differentiated between the people's right to bear arms and their service in a militia. Quote, in a people permitted and accustomed to bear arms, we have the rudiments of a militia, which properly consists of armed citizens, divided into military bands, and instructed, at least in part, in the use of arms for the purposes of war. Rawl further said that the Second Amendment right ought not be abused in the disturbance of the public peace, such as by assembling with other armed individuals for an unlawful purpose, statements that make no sense if the right does not extend to any individual purpose. Joseph Story published his famous commentaries on the Constitution of the United States in 1833. Justice Stevens suggests that there is not so much as a whisper in Story's explanation of the Second Amendment that favors the individual rights view. That is wrong. Story explained that the English Bill of Rights had also included a right to bear arms, a right that, as we have discussed, had nothing to do with militia service. He then equated the English right with the Second Amendment. A similar provision to the Second Amendment in favor of Protestants, for to them it is confined, is to be found in the Bill of Rights of 1688, it being declared that the subjects, which are Protestants, may have arms for their defense suitable to their condition, and as allowed by law. But under various pretenses, the effect of this provision has been greatly narrowed, and it is at present in England more nominal than real as a defensive privilege. 
this comparison to the Declaration of Right would not make sense if the Second Amendment right was the right to use a gun in a militia, which was plainly not what the English right protected. As the Tennessee Supreme Court recognized 38 years after Story wrote his commentaries, the passage from Story shows clearly that this right was intended and was guaranteed to and to be exercised and enjoyed by the citizens as such, and not by him as a soldier or in the defense solely of his political rights. Story's commentaries also cite as support Tucker and Rawl, both of whom clearly viewed the right as unconnected to militia service. In addition, in a shorter 1840 work, Story wrote, quote, One of the ordinary modes by which tyrants accomplish their purposes without resistance is by disarming the people and making it an offense to keep arms and by substituting a regular army in the stead of a resort to the militia. Anti-slavery advocates routinely invoked the right to bear arms for self-defense. Joel Tiffany, for example, citing Blackstone's description of the right, wrote that the right to keep and bear arms also implies the right to use them, if necessary, in self-defense. Without this right to use, the guarantee would have hardly been worth the paper it consumed. In his famous Senate speech about the 1856 Bleeding Kansas conflict, Charles Sumner proclaimed, The rifle has ever been the companion of the pioneer, and under God his tutelary protector against the red man and the beast of the forest. Never was this efficient weapon more needed in just self-defense than now in Kansas, and at least one article in our national constitution must be blotted out before the complete right to it can in any way be impeached. And yet such is the madness of the hour that in defiance of the solemn guarantee embodied in the amendments to the constitution that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, the people of Kansas have been arraigned for keeping and bearing them, and the senator from South Carolina has had the face to say openly, on this floor, that they should be disarmed. Of course, that the fanatics of slavery, his allies and constituents, may meet no impediment. We have found only one 19th century commentator who clearly conditioned the right to keep and bear arms upon service in the militia, and he recognized that the prevailing view was to the contrary. Quote, the provision of the Constitution declaring the right of the people to keep and bear arms was probably intended to apply to the right of the people to bear arms for such militia-related purposes only, and not to prevent Congress or the legislatures of the different states from enacting laws to prevent the citizens from always going armed. 
A different construction, however, has been given to it. 2. Pre-Civil War Case Law The 19th century cases that interpreted the Second Amendment universally support an individual right unconnected to militia service. In Houston v. Moore, 1820, this court held that states have concurrent power over the militia, at least where not preempted by Congress. Agreeing in dissent that states could organize, discipline, and arm the militia in the absence of conflicting federal regulation, Justice Story said that the Second Amendment may not perhaps be thought to have any important bearing on this point. If it have, it confirms and illustrates, rather than impugns, the reasoning already suggested. Of course, if the amendment simply protected the right of the people of each of the several states to maintain a well-regulated militia, it would have enormous and obvious bearing on the point. But the court and story derived the state's power over the militia from the non-exclusive nature of federal power, not from the Second Amendment, whose preamble merely confirms and illustrates the importance of the militia. Even clearer was Justice Baldwin. In the famous fugitive slave case of Johnson v. Tompkins, 1833, Baldwin, sitting as a circuit judge, cited both the Second Amendment and the Pennsylvania Analog for his conclusion that a citizen has a right to carry arms in defense of his property or person, and to use them if either were assailed with such force, numbers, or violence as made it necessary for the protection or safety of either. Many early 19th century state cases indicated that the Second Amendment right to bear arms was an individual right unconnected to militia service, though subject to certain restrictions. A Virginia case in 1824 holding that the Constitution did not extend to free blacks, explained that numerous restrictions imposed on blacks in our statute book, many of which are inconsistent with the letter and spirit of the Constitution, both of this state and of the United States, as respects to the free whites, demonstrate that here those instruments have not been considered to extend equally to both classes of our population. We will only instance the restriction upon the migration of free blacks into this state, and upon their right to bear arms. The claim was obviously not that blacks were prevented from carrying guns in the militia. An 1829 decision by the Supreme Court of Michigan said, The Constitution of the United States also grants to the citizen the right to keep and bear arms, but the grant of this privilege cannot be construed into the right in him who keeps a gun to destroy his neighbor. No rights are intended to be granted by the Constitution for an unlawful or unjustifiable purpose. 
It is not possible to read this as discussing anything other than an individual right unconnected to militia service. If it did have to do with militia service, the limitation upon it would not be any unlawful or unjustifiable purpose, but any non-military purpose whatsoever. In Nunn v. State, 1846, the Georgia Supreme Court construed the Second Amendment as protecting the natural right of self-defense and therefore struck down a ban on carrying pistols openly. Its opinion perfectly captured the way in which the operative clause of the Second Amendment furthers the purpose announced in the prefatory clause in continuity with the English right. Quote, the right of the whole people, old and young, men, women, and boys, and not militia only, to keep and bear arms of every description, and not such merely as are used by the militia, shall not be infringed, curtailed, or broken in upon, in the smallest degree, and all this for the important end to be attained. The rearing up and qualifying a well-regulated militia, so vitally necessary to the security of a free state. Our opinion is that any law, state or federal, is repugnant to the Constitution and void, which contravenes this right, originally belonging to our forefathers, trampled underfoot by Charles I and his two wicked sons and successors, re-established by the Revolution of 1688, conveyed to this land of liberty by the colonists, and finally incorporated conspicuously in our own Magna Carta, unquote. Likewise, in State v. Chandler, 1850, the Louisiana Supreme Court held that citizens had a right to carry arms openly, this is the right guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States and which is calculated to incite men to a manly and noble defense of themselves, if necessary, and of their country, without any tendency to secret advantages and unmanly assassinations. Those who believe that the Second Amendment preserves only a militia-centered right place great reliance on the Tennessee Supreme Court's 1840 decision in Imet v. State. The case does not stand for that broad proposition. In fact, the case does not mention the word militia at all, except in its quoting of the Second Amendment. The case held that the state constitutional guarantee of the right to bear arms did not prohibit the banning of concealed weapons, the opinion first recognized that both the state right and the federal right were descendants of the 1689 English right, but read that right to refer only to protection of the public liberty and keeping in awe those in power. The court then adopted a sort of middle position whereby citizens were permitted to carry arms openly unconnected with any service in a formal militia, but were given the right to use them only for the military purpose of banding together to oppose tyranny. 
This odd reading of the rite is, to be sure, not the one we adopt, but it is not petitioner's reading either. More importantly, seven years earlier, the Tennessee Supreme Court had treated the state constitutional provision as conferring a right of all the free citizens of the state to keep and bear arms for their defense. And 21 years later, the court held that the keep portion of the state constitutional right included the right to personal self-defense. Quote, the right to keep arms involves necessarily the right to use such arms for all the ordinary purposes and in all the ordinary modes usual in the country and to which arms are adapted, limited by the duties of a good citizen in times of peace. 3. Post-Civil War Legislation In the aftermath of the Civil War, there was an outpouring of discussion of the Second Amendment in Congress and in public discourse, as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves. Since those discussions took place 75 years after the ratification of the Second Amendment, they do not provide as much insight into its original meaning as earlier sources. Yet those born and educated in the early 19th century faced a widespread effort to limit arms ownership by a large number of citizens, their understanding of the origins and continuing significance of the amendment is instructive. Blacks were routinely disarmed by southern states after the Civil War. Those who opposed these injustices frequently stated that they infringed blacks' constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Needless to say, the claim was not that blacks were being prohibited from carrying arms in an organized state militia. A report of the Commission of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1866 stated plainly, The civil law of Kentucky prohibits the colored man from bearing arms. Their arms are taken from them by the civil authorities. Thus, the right of the people to keep and bear arms as provided in the Constitution is infringed. A joint congressional report decried, In some parts of South Carolina, armed parties are without proper authority, engaged in seizing all firearms found in the hands of the freemen. Such conduct is in clear and direct violation of their personal rights as guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States, which declares that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The freedmen of South Carolina have shown by their peaceful and orderly conduct that they can safely be trusted with firearms, and they need them to kill game for subsistence and to protect their crops from destruction by birds and animals. The view expressed in these statements was widely reported and was apparently widely held. For example, an editorial in the Loyal Georgian on February 3, 1866, assured blacks that all men, without distinction of color, have the right to keep and bear arms to defend their homes, families, or themselves. 
Congress enacted the Freedmen's Bureau Act on July 16, 1866. Section 14 stated, The right to have full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, personal security, and the acquisition, enjoyment, and disposition of a state, real and personal, including the constitutional right to bear arms, shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens, without respect to race, color, or previous condition of slavery. The understanding that the Second Amendment gave freed blacks the right to keep and bear arms was reflected in congressional discussion of the bill, with even an opponent of it saying that the founding generation were for every man bearing his arms about him and keeping them in his house, his castle, for his own defense. Similar discussion attended the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1871 and the 14th Amendment. For example, Representative Butler said of the act, Section 8 is intended to enforce the well-known constitutional provision guaranteeing the right of the citizen to keep and bear arms and provides that whoever shall take away by force or violence or by threats and intimidation the arms and weapons which any person may have for his defense shall be deemed guilty of larceny of the same. With respect to the proposed amendment, Senator Pomeroy described as one of the three indispensable safeguards of liberty under the Constitution, a man's right to bear arms for the defense of himself and family and his homestead. Representative Nye thought the 14th Amendment unnecessary because as citizens of the United States, blacks have equal right to protection and to keep and bear arms for self-defense. 4. Post-Civil War Commentators Every late 19th century legal scholar that we have read interpreted the Second Amendment to secure an individual right unconnected with militia service. The most famous was the judge and professor Thomas Cooley, who wrote a massively popular 1868 treatise on constitutional limitations. Concerning the Second Amendment, it said, Among the other defenses to personal liberty should be mentioned the right of the people to keep and bear arms. The alternative to a standing army is a well-regulated militia, but this cannot exist unless the people are trained to bearing arms. How far it is in the power of the legislature to regulate this right, we shall not undertake to say, as happily there has been very little occasion to discuss that subject by the courts. That Cooley understood the right not as connected to militia service, but as securing the militia by ensuring a populace familiar with arms is made even clearer in his 1880 work, General Principles of Constitutional Law. The Second Amendment, he said, was adopted with some modification and enlargement from the English Bill of Rights of 1688, where it stood 
as a protest against arbitrary action of the overturned dynasty in disarming the people. In a section entitled The Right in General, he continued, It might be supposed from the phraseology of this provision that the right to keep and bear arms was only guaranteed to the militia, but this would be an interpretation not warranted by the intent. The militia, as has been elsewhere explained, consists of those persons who, under the law, are liable to the performance of military duty and are officered and enrolled for service when called upon. But the law may make provision for the enrollment of all who are fit to perform military duty, or of a small number only, or it may wholly omit to make any provision at all. And if the right were limited to those enrolled, the purpose of this guarantee might be defeated altogether by the action or neglect to act of the government it was meant to hold in check. The meaning of the provision undoubtedly is that the people from whom the militia must be taken shall have the right to keep and bear arms, and they need no permission or regulation of law for the purpose. But this enables government to have a well-regulated militia, for to bear arms implies something more than the mere keeping. It implies the learning to handle and use them in a way that makes those who keep them ready for their efficient use. In other words, it implies the right to meet for voluntary discipline in arms, observing in doing so the laws of public order. All other post-Civil War 19th century sources we have found concurred with Cooley. One example from each decade will convey the general flavor. The purpose of the Second Amendment is to secure a well-armed militia, but a militia would be useless unless the citizens were enabled to exercise themselves in the use of warlike weapons, to preserve this privilege, and to secure to the people the ability to oppose themselves in military force against the usurpations of government, as well as against enemies from without. That government is forbidden by any law or proceeding to invade or destroy the right to keep and bear arms. The clause is analogous to the one securing the freedom of speech and of the press. Freedom, not license, is secured. The fair use, not the libelous abuse, is protected. From Pomeroy, 1868. As the Constitution of the United States and the constitutions of several of the states in terms more or less comprehensive, declare the right of the people to keep and bear arms, it has been a subject of grave discussion in some of the state courts whether a statute prohibiting persons when not on a journey or as travelers from wearing or carrying concealed weapons be constitutional. There has been great difference of opinion on the question from Kent, 1873. 
Some general knowledge of firearms is important to the public welfare because it would be impossible in case of war to organize promptly an efficient force of volunteers unless the people had some familiarity with weapons of war. The Constitution secures the right of the people to keep and bear arms. No doubt, a citizen who keeps a gun or pistol under judicious precautions practices in safe places the use of it, and in due time teaches his sons to do the same, exercises his individual right. No doubt a person whose residence or duties involve peculiar peril may keep a pistol for prudent self-defense. From Abbott, 1880. The right to bear arms has always been the distinctive privilege of freemen. Aside from any necessity of self-protection to the person, it represents, among all nations, power coupled with the exercise of a certain jurisdiction. It was not necessary that the right to bear arms should be granted in the Constitution, for it had always existed. Ordrano. 1891. Section E. We now ask whether any of our precedents forecloses the conclusions we have reached about the meaning of the Second Amendment. United States v. Cruikshank, in the course of vacating the convictions of members of a white mob for depriving blacks of their right to keep and bear arms, held that the Second Amendment does not by its own force apply to anyone other than the federal government. The opinion explained that the right is not a right granted by the Constitution or in any manner dependent upon that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment means no more than it shall not be infringed by Congress. States, we said, were free to restrict or protect the right under their police powers. The limited discussion of the Second Amendment in Cruikshank supports, if anything, the individual rights interpretation. There was no claim in Cruikshank that the victims had been deprived of their right to carry arms in a militia. Indeed, the governor had disbanded the local militia unit the year before the mob's attack. We described the right protected by the Second Amendment as bearing arms for a lawful purpose and said that the people must look for their protection against any violation by their fellow citizens of the rights it recognizes to the state's police power. That discussion makes little sense if it is only a right to bear arms in a state militia. Presser v. Illinois, 1886, held that the right to keep and bear arms was not violated by a law that forbade bodies of men to associate together as military organizations or to drill or parade with arms in cities and towns unless authorized by law. This does not refute the individual rights interpretation of the amendment. No one supporting that interpretation has contended that states may not ban such groups. 
Justice Stevens presses Presser into service to support his view that the right to bear arms is limited to service in the militia by joining Presser's brief discussion of the Second Amendment with a later portion of the opinion making the seemingly relevant point that the plaintiff was not a member of the state militia. Unfortunately for Justice Stevens' argument, that later portion deals with the 14th Amendment. It was the 14th Amendment to which the plaintiff's non-membership in the militia was relevant. Thus, Justice Stevens' statement that Presser suggested that nothing in the Constitution protected the use of arms outside the context of a militia is simply wrong. Presser said nothing about the Second Amendment's meaning or scope beyond the fact that it does not prevent the prohibition of private paramilitary organizations. Justice Stevens places overwhelming reliance upon this court's decision in United States v. Miller, 1939. Quote, hundreds of judges, we are told, have relied on the view of the amendment we endorsed there, and even if the textual and historical arguments on both sides of the issue were evenly balanced, respect for the well-settled views of all of our predecessors on this court, and for the rule of law itself, would prevent most jurists from endorsing such a dramatic upheaval in the law. And what is, according to Justice Stevens, the holding of Miller that demands such obeisance? That the Second Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms for certain military purposes, but that it does not curtail the legislature's power to regulate the non-military use and ownership of weapons. Nothing so clearly demonstrates the weakness of Justice Stevens' case. Miller did not hold that and cannot possibly be read to have held that. The judgment in the case upheld against a Second Amendment challenge two men's federal convictions for transporting an unregistered short-barreled shotgun in interstate commerce in violation of the National Firearms Act. It is entirely clear that the court's basis for saying that the Second Amendment did not apply was not that the defendants were bearing arms not for military purposes but for non-military use. Rather, it was that the type of weapon at issue was not eligible for Second Amendment protection. In the absence of any evidence tending to show that the possession or use of a short-barreled shotgun at this time has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. Certainly, the court continued, it is not within judicial notice that this weapon is any part of the ordinary military equipment or that its use could contribute to the common defense. Beyond that, the opinion provided no explanation of the content of the right. This holding is not only consistent with, but positively suggests, 
that the Second Amendment confers an individual right to keep and bear arms, though only arms that have some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. Had the court believed that the Second Amendment protects only those serving in the militia, it would have been odd to examine the character of the weapon rather than simply note that the two crooks were not militiamen. Justice Stevens can say again and again that Miller did not turn on the difference between muskets and sawed-off shotguns. It turned rather on the basic difference between the military and non-military use and possession of guns. But the words of the opinion prove otherwise. The most Justice Stevens can plausibly claim for Miller is that it declined to decide the nature of the Second Amendment right, despite the Solicitor General's argument that the right was collective. Miller stands only for the proposition that the Second Amendment right, whatever its nature, extends only to certain types of weapons. It is particularly wrong-headed to read Miller for more than what it said, because the case did not even purport to be a thorough examination of the Second Amendment. Justice Stevens claims that the opinion reached its conclusion after reviewing many of the same sources that are discussed at greater length by the court today, not many, which was not entirely the court's fault. The respondent made no appearance in the case, neither filing a brief nor appearing at oral argument, the court heard from no one but the government. The government's brief spent two pages discussing English legal sources, concluding that at least the carrying of weapons without lawful occasion or excuse was always a crime, and that because of the class-based restrictions and the prohibition on terrorizing people with dangerous or unusual weapons— the early English law did not guarantee an unrestricted right to bear arms. It then went on to rely primarily on the discussion of the English right to bear arms for the proposition that the only uses of arms protected by the Second Amendment are those that relate to the militia, not self-defense. The final section of the brief recognized that some courts have said that the right to bear arms includes the right of the individual to have them for the protection of his person and property, and launched an alternative argument that weapons which are commonly used by criminals, such as sawed-off shotguns, are not protected. The government's Miller brief thus provided scant discussion of the history of the Second Amendment, and the court was presented with no counter-discussion. As for the text of the court's opinion itself, that discusses none of the history of the Second Amendment. It assumes from the prologue that the amendment was designed to preserve the militia, which we do not dispute, and then reviews some historical materials dealing with the nature of the militia, and in particular with the nature of the arms their members were expected to possess not a word about the history of the Second Amendment. This is the mighty rock upon which the dissent rests its case.
we may as well consider at this point what types of weapons Miller permits. Read in isolation, Miller's phrase, part of the ordinary military equipment, could mean that only those weapons useful in warfare are protected. That would be a startling reading of the opinion, since it would mean that the National Firearms Act's restrictions on machine guns might be unconstitutional, machine guns being useful in warfare in 1939. We think that Miller's ordinary military equipment language must be read in tandem with what comes after. Quote, ordinarily when called for militia service, able-bodied men were expected to appear bearing arms supplied by themselves and of the kind in common use at the time, Unquote. The traditional militia was formed from a pool of men bringing arms in common use at the time for lawful purposes like self-defense. In the colonial and revolutionary war era, small arms weapons used by militiamen and weapons used in defense of a person and home were one and the same. Indeed, that is precisely the way in which the Second Amendment's operative clause furthers the purpose announced in its preface. We therefore read Miller to say only that the Second Amendment does not protect those weapons not typically possessed by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, such as short-barreled shotguns. That accords with the historical understanding of the scope of the right. We conclude that nothing in our precedents forecloses our adoption of the original understanding of the Second Amendment. It should be unsurprising that such a significant matter has been for so long judicially unresolved. For most of our history, the Bill of Rights was not thought applicable to the states, and the federal government did not significantly regulate the possession of firearms by law-abiding citizens. Other provisions of the Bill of Rights have similarly remained unilluminated for lengthy periods. This court first held a law to violate the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech in 1931, almost 150 years after the amendment was ratified. And it was not until after World War II that we held a law invalid under the Establishment Clause. Even a question as basic as the scope of proscribable libel was not addressed by this court until 1964, nearly two centuries after the founding. It is demonstrably not true that, as Justice Stevens claims, for most of our history, the invalidity of Second Amendment-based objections to firearms regulations has been well settled and uncontroversial. For most of our history, the question did not present itself. Part 3 Like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. For example, 
the majority of the 19th century courts to consider the question held that prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful under the Second Amendment or state analogs. Although we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. We also recognize another important limitation on the right to keep and carry arms. Miller said, as we have explained, that the sorts of weapons protected were those in common use at the time. We think that limitation is fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons. It may be objected that if weapons that are most useful in military service, M16 rifles and the like, may be banned, then the Second Amendment right is completely detached from the prefatory clause. But as we have said, the conception of the militia at the time of the Second Amendment's ratification was the body of all citizens capable of military service who would bring the sorts of lawful weapons that they possessed at home to militia duty. It may well be true today that a militia, to be as effective as militias in the 18th century, would require sophisticated arms that are highly unusual in society at large, Indeed, it may be true that no amount of small arms could be useful against modern-day bombers and tanks. But the fact that modern developments have limited the degree of fit between the prefatory clause and the protected right cannot change our interpretation of the right. Part 4 we turn finally to the law at issue here. As we have said, the law totally bans handgun possession in the home. It also requires that any lawful firearm in the home be disassembled or bound by a trigger lock at all times, rendering it inoperable. As the quotations earlier in this opinion demonstrate, the inherent right of self-defense has been central to the Second Amendment right. The handgun ban amounts to a prohibition of an entire class of arms that is overwhelmingly chosen by American society for that lawful purpose. The prohibition extends, moreover, to the home, where the need for defense of self, family, and property is most acute. Under any of the standards of scrutiny that we have applied to enumerated constitutional rights, banning from the home the most preferred firearm in the nation to keep and use for protection of one's home and family would fail constitutional muster. Few laws in the history of our nation have come close to the severe restriction of the district's handgun ban and some of those few have been struck down. 
In Nunn v. State, the Georgia Supreme Court struck down a prohibition on carrying pistols openly. In Andrews v. State, the Tennessee Supreme Court likewise held that a statute that forbade openly carrying a pistol, publicly or privately, without regard to time or place or circumstances, violated the state constitutional provision. That was so even though the statute did not restrict the carrying of long guns. It is no answer to say, as petitioners do, that it is permissible to ban the possession of handguns so long as the possession of other firearms is allowed. It is enough to note, as we have observed, that the American people have considered the handgun to be the quintessential self-defense weapon. There are many reasons that a citizen may prefer a handgun for home defense. It is easier to store in a location that is readily accessible in an emergency. It cannot easily be redirected or wrestled away by an attacker. It is easier to use for those without the upper body strength to lift and aim a long gun. It can be pointed at a burglar with one hand while the other hand dials the police. Whatever the reason, handguns are the most popular weapon chosen by Americans for self-defense in the home, and a complete prohibition of their use is invalid. We must also address the district's requirement that firearms in the home be rendered and kept inoperable at all times. This makes it impossible for citizens to use them for the core lawful purpose of self-defense and is hence unconstitutional. The district argues that we should interpret this element of the statute to contain an exception for self-defense. But we think that it is precluded by the unequivocal text and by the presence of certain other enumerated exceptions. Except for law enforcement personnel, each registrant shall keep any firearm in his possession unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or similar device unless such firearm is kept at his place of business or while being used for lawful recreational purposes within the District of Columbia. The non-existence of a self-defense exception is also suggested by the D.C. Court of Appeals statement that the statute forbids residents to use firearms to stop intruders. Apart from his challenge to the handgun ban and the trigger lock requirement, respondent asked the district court to enjoin petitioners from enforcing the separate licensing requirement in such a manner as to forbid the carrying of a firearm within one's home or possessed land without a license. The Court of Appeals did not invalidate the licensing requirement, but held only that the district may not prevent a handgun from being moved throughout one's house. It then ordered the district court to enter summary judgment consistent with respondent's prayer for relief. Before this court, petitioners have stated that if the handgun ban is struck down and respondent registers a handgun, 
he could obtain a license, assuming he is not otherwise disqualified, by which they apparently mean if he is not a felon and is not insane. Respondent conceded at oral argument that he does not have a problem with licensing and that the district's law is permissible so long as it is not enforced in an arbitrary and capricious manner. We therefore assume that petitioner's issuance of a license will satisfy respondent's prayer for relief and do not address the licensing requirement. Justice Breyer has devoted most of his separate dissent to the handgun ban. He says that, even assuming the Second Amendment is a personal guarantee of the right to bear arms, the district's prohibition is valid. He first tries to establish this by founding-era historical precedent, pointing to various restrictive laws in the colonial period. These demonstrate, in his view, that the district's law imposes a burden upon gun owners that seems proportionately no greater than restrictions in existence at the time the Second Amendment was adopted. Of the laws he cites, only one offers even marginal support for his assertion. A 1783 Massachusetts law forbade the residents of Boston to take into or receive into any dwelling house, stable, barn, outhouse, warehouse, store, shop, or other building, loaded firearms, and permitted the seizure of any loaded firearms that shall be found there. That statute's text and its prologue, which makes clear that the purpose of the prohibition was to eliminate the danger to firefighters posed by the depositing of loaded arms in buildings, give reason to doubt that colonial Boston authorities would have enforced that general prohibition against someone who temporarily loaded a firearm to confront an intruder. In any case, we would not stake our interpretation of the Second Amendment upon a single law, in effect in a single city, that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence regarding the right to keep and bear arms for defense of the home. The other laws Justice Breyer cites are gunpowder storage laws that he concedes did not clearly prohibit loaded weapons, but required only that excess gunpowder be kept in a special container or on the top floor of the home. Nothing about those fire safety laws undermines our analysis. They do not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns. Nor, correspondingly, does our analysis suggest the invalidity of laws regulating the storage of firearms to prevent accidents. Justice Breyer points to other founding-era laws that he says restricted the firing of guns within the city limits to at least some degree in Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. Those laws provide no support for the severe restriction in the present case. The New York law levied a fine of 20 shillings on anyone who fired a gun in certain places, 
including houses, on New Year's Eve and the first two days of January, and was aimed at preventing the great damages frequently done on those days by persons going house to house with guns and other firearms and being often intoxicated with liquor. It is inconceivable that this law would have been enforced against a person exercising his right to self-defense on New Year's Day against such drunken hooligans. The Pennsylvania law, to which Justice Breyer refers, levied a fine of five shillings on one who fired a gun or set off fireworks in Philadelphia without first obtaining a license from the governor. Given Justice Wilson's explanation that the right to self-defense with arms was protected by the Pennsylvania Constitution, it is unlikely that this law would have been enforced against a person who used firearms for self-defense. Justice Breyer cites a Rhode Island law that simply levied a five-shilling fine on those who fired guns in streets and taverns, a law obviously inapplicable to this case. Finally, Justice Breyer points to a Massachusetts law similar to the Pennsylvania law, prohibiting discharging any gun or pistol charged with shot or ball in the town of Boston. It is again implausible that this would have been enforced against a citizen acting in self-defense, particularly given its preambulatory reference to the indiscreet firing of guns. A broader point about the laws that Justice Breyer cites. All of them punished the discharge or loading of guns with a small fine and forfeiture of the weapon or, in a few cases, a very brief stay in the local jail, not with significant criminal penalties. They are akin to modern penalties for minor public safety infractions like speeding or jaywalking. And although such public safety laws may not contain exceptions for self-defense, it is inconceivable that the threat of a jaywalking ticket would deter someone from disregarding a do-not-walk sign in order to flee an attacker, or that the government would enforce those laws under such circumstances. Likewise, we do not think that a law imposing a five-shilling fine and forfeiture of the gun would have prevented a person in the founding era from using a gun to protect himself or his family from violence, or that if he did so, the law would be enforced against him. The district law, by contrast, far from imposing a minor fine, threatens citizens with a year in prison, five years for a second violation, for even obtaining a gun in the first place. Justice Breyer moves on to make a broad jurisprudential point. He criticizes us for declining to establish a level of scrutiny for evaluating Second Amendment restrictions. He proposes, explicitly at least, none of the traditionally expressed levels, such as strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, or rational basis, but rather a judge-empowering, interest-balancing inquiry that asks whether the statute burdens a protected interest 
in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the statute's salutary effects upon other important governmental interests. After an exhaustive discussion of the arguments for and against gun control, Justice Breyer arrives at his interest-balanced answer. Because handgun violence is a problem, because the law is limited to an urban area, and because there were somewhat similar restrictions in the founding period, the interest-balancing inquiry results in the constitutionality of the handgun ban. We know of no other enumerated constitutional right whose core protection has been subjected to a freestanding, interest-balancing approach. The very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. A constitutional guarantee subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them, whether or not future legislatures or even future judges think that scope too broad. We would not apply an interest-balancing approach to the prohibition of a peaceful neo-Nazi march through Skokie. The First Amendment contains the freedom of speech guarantee that the people ratified which included exceptions for obscenity, libel, and disclosure of state secrets, but not for the expression of extremely unpopular and wrong-headed views. The Second Amendment is no different. Like the first, it is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, which Justice Breyer would now conduct for them anew. And whatever else it leaves to future evaluation, it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding responsible citizens to use arms in defense of hearth and home. Justice Breyer chides us for leaving so many applications of the right to keep and bear arms in doubt and for not providing extensive historical justification for those regulations of the right that we describe as permissible. But since this case represents this court's first in-depth examination of the Second Amendment, one should not expect it to clarify the entire field, any more than Reynolds v. United States, our first in-depth free exercise clause case, left that area in a state of utter certainty. And there will be time enough to expound upon the historical justifications for the exceptions we have mentioned if and when those exceptions come before us. In sum, we hold that the district's ban on handgun possession in the home violates the Second Amendment, as does its prohibition against rendering any lawful firearm in the home operable for the purpose of immediate self-defense. Assuming that Heller is not disqualified from the exercise of Second Amendment rights, the district must permit him to register his handgun 
and must issue him a license to carry it in the home. We are aware of the problem of handgun violence in this country, and we take seriously the concerns raised by the many amici who believe that the prohibition of handgun ownership is a solution. The Constitution leaves the District of Columbia a variety of tools for combating that problem, including some measures regulating handguns. But the enshrinement of constitutional rights necessarily takes certain policy choices off the table. These include the absolute prohibition of handguns held and used for self-defense in the home. Undoubtedly, some think that the Second Amendment is outmoded in a society where our standing army is the pride of our nation, where well-trained police forces provide personal security, and where gun violence is a serious problem. That is perhaps debatable. But what is not debatable is that it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. We affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>